Lit House is a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. In this episode, you can hear the American writers Siri Hustvedt and Chris Kraus in a conversation led by Anne Hilde Neset, director of Kunstnernes Hus in Oslo. The conversation took place on August 21st, 2017. So great to see so many of you here. It's truly exciting to uh, have this opportunity to talk to uh, you, Siri, and uh, Chris. And uh, the, t- the, talk, the talk's um, title is Art and Rage. <laughs> Sorry. So, <laughs> so I just thought, we only have an hour, let's just jump right in. So I'm going to start with Rage. Um, and Chris, I wanted to start a little bit with um, you. Uh, for those of you who here, were here yesterday, there was a, a kind of a, uh, an evening's love-in for I Love Dick with uh, a, a marathon screening of the TV series uh, and also a conversation uh, with uh, Chris. And uh, it's, it's a book about an obsessional love story, but it's really also, to me at least, um, a book about art. And it's, uh, in a, it's an alternative feminist art history sort of squatting inside a love story. Um, and the demonizing and marginalization of uh, women is in sort of constant play during the, during the course of the book. And you write about um, Jennifer Hanbury, Catherine Mansfield, Hannah Wilker... Uh, Marion Shapiro, Judy Chicago, <laughs> I could go on. Um, the, the book and the series mentions so many names and so many stories and so many anecdotes about these uh, real women. Um, and in the art world in general is, is kind of evoked as a very hostile place for women. So I just wanted to ask you, is it? Well, it's a hostile place in general. <laughs> um, and... The stories of these women that I'm telling in I Love Dick, um, their problems don't always come sheerly from the fact of being a woman, although that's part of it. Yeah. I mean, in the case of Catherine Mansfield, she's an outsider in London, she's a colonial, and I write about you know Virginia Woolf's intense rivalry with her. Um, but yeah, I mean, no doubt. There was a thing that I picked up on... Um, Researching the book, I wanted to find out, one of the questions that was haunting me was like, what became of the second wave feminist artists? And where are they now? I was writing in the 90s, when those women were at an age, they would have been in their 60s, when they should have been our leaders. And where were they? They were in mental hospitals, they were living in teepees in Santa Fe. (laughs) What happened to them? And I tracked down a number of those women and talked to them. And, okay, Rage, I think they had such a terrible experience in their lives and careers, and they were so bitter that they just didn't want to engage with the world anymore. And they were also, you know, they were also not very good with younger women. They were not welcoming. Of, they didn't yes. want to have any dialogue yeah. Yeah. With, um, with women like me or my age. Um, and that's a terrible tragedy. Yeah. You know, so I published Shalom with Firestone's book, 
in the Native Agents series. Yeah. You know, and I had been profoundly influenced by her um, as a teenager when she wrote Dialectic of Sex. Yeah. And I'd always wondered, I wonder what became of Shulamith. You know, she was so brilliant. She yes. was such a genius. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what became of her was poverty and mental illness in New York City. Yeah. And um, the book that we published was a very beautiful book, but it was short vignettes of institutional life. Um, when she was hospitalized and you know in public wards of mental institutions in New York City. Um, so yeah, these women did not come to a particularly good fate. Mm. Um, it's the way that the world treats women. It's also the way that the world treats artists and people who are somewhat outside the system. Mm. Right. Mm. Yeah. I want to bring in Harriet Burden who is the character of the blazing world. She, has, she harbors a lot of, of rage. Um, uh, there is a, the, the, the book starts with a sentence, all intellectual and artistic endeavors, even jokes, ironies, and parodies fare better in the mind of a crowd when the crowd knows that somewhere behind the great work or the great spoof, it can locate a cock and a pair of balls. Yes. And that's Harriet Burden's uh, quote. Yes, it's in. complicated. Yeah. So an editor <laughs> is introducing a text of texts. Mm. There are 19 different narrators, and that is a quote from Harriet Burden, but it's quoted in an academic article that she's writing under a male pseudonym about herself. <laughs> okay, so there are many layers to the quotation. At the same time, you're absolutely right. Harriet Burden is a creature of rage. And when I wrote the book, I was thinking about Greek tragedy and the purity of emotions that are communicated in Greek tragedy by female characters, Medea, for example, is mm. mentioned. Mm. And there was something wonderful about writing pure rage without depression. Mm. <laughs> you know, in psychiatry, anger is often accompanied by depressive states, yeah. right? And, and, and a lot of anxiety. But, you know, Harry's a literary character, and she got to have pure rage. And it's, you know, it's, I mean, Chris is talking about it's certainly present in, in I Love Dick, in your novel, that what happens is that art by women is often reduced. There is what I call a masculine enhancement effect mm -hmm. and a feminine diminution effect. Uh, even when it's bad, a pollution effect. It's interesting that you talk about madness. Um, uh, Lucy Rigore um, says, each sex has a relation to madness. Every desire has a relation to madness. But it would seem that one desire has been taken as wisdom, moderation, truth, leaving the other sex the weight of a madness that cannot be acknowledged or accommodated. So the male madness and the female madness, somehow the male madness is accepted. Um, <laughs> it's better. And, uh, <laughs> it's nicer to be crazy if you're a man. No, but I think this, it was mentioned at the beginning. Mm. Uh, Western culture 
does uh, continue to have a deep mind-body split. Feminist scholars have written about this at great length, the identification of uh, the female with the body and uh, man with intellect. This continues in our culture. Mm. It's implicit in much of what we do. I think this uh, split, uh, it's in Plato, and of course it's recodified in Aristotle, and Descartes made it absolute. Mm. It is a false dichotomy. It is a wrong move. <laughs> so putting these back together, an embodied subject, is what I believe in philosophically. And I think that is an aid to feminism. Mm. Yes, yes. And uh, it's very persistent. Yes. Avital Ronell has written about this awful also. Um, when she in her book about stupidity, stupidity <laughs> having to do something with the baseness of the body, and the body is always where female writing ends up being right. assigned. Yes. So, yes, yes the body, yes. low, stupid, female, the intellect, pure. I mean, this is so ridiculous, right? It's this ridiculous. So kind I mean, of Aryan in 19th century. It's, it's ridiculous. And yet, somehow it's still here. Yeah, and sometimes, somehow it's very strongly here. Also, um, you talk about this because you, you talk about in your, um, your collection of essays, you talk about age uh, yes. and um, uh, that um, women discovered late in life, uh, like Joan Mitchell, for example. You speak about her here in, uh, in Norway. We might have examples like Siri Eurdal, Cecil Porska, Hannah Bergen, and so on, who are... Um, get recognition at the tail end of their lives or, or, or after dead. their death. Yeah. Exactly. Or they're In dead. The case so, of so this is the idea. The prejudice is this, and I don't think it's limited to men. We all have it. And I, it's a fictional example. Okay, Two people are standing at a cocktail party. And they look across the room, and there's this beautiful young woman in a low-cut dress, and she's got a glass of champagne, and she's laughing. And one person looks at the other and says, you mean that beautiful girl over there is working on her second post-doctorate in microbiology at Rockefeller? Right? Mm. I happen to know some young women like that, by the way. And... We, we have a hard time digesting that. Not just men, but the culture is the idea of a fertile, beautiful young woman uh, being a, an intellectual is hard to take. In fact, your book, uh, uh, I love Dick, I thought, this is the journey of a young intellectual woman who has a lot of trouble being taken seriously in that world. Yeah. Yeah. Par I mean, it's partly that. Yeah. Yeah. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would agree. I think, don't people always say that, you know, um, for gender, you add 10 years, uh, 10 years for work to become known if it's by a woman? Yes. You had another 10 right. years of the person is not from an upper middle class background. <laughs> yes, so if you write that's about right. You need to wait for 10 years before it gets right. kind of recognized. And, and in you, I mean, um, are you fueled by rage, Siri, not, uh, not Harriet? <laughs> I'm fueled by so many things, yeah. right? So, so I'm, actually, anger, if you think about 
it as an emotion. Anger uh, has its positive aspects, which is anger is always fueled by hope. You're never angry when you're in despair. Mm. Anger holds inside it the assumption that we can do something about it. So anger can have a positive function. Too much anger, obviously, you just explode. Yeah. <laughs> you go yeah. mad. Yeah. Yes, but it's more energized than apathy. Much more, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. Are you, would you say you have experienced that kind of um, unequal treatment as a, as a woman in the literary world? Well, we were talking, we did an interview together yes. uh, this <laughs> afternoon, and we t talked about the fact that women's art is very often put more quickly into categories, that Simone de Beauvoir is still right. The white male artist or writer is the universal, and then there are women and black people and gay people and all the other uh, writers or artists on the side. Mm. Um, so, yes, I think it continues to happen. And um, so the autobiographical, the confessional, uh, the not intellectual is still something that sticks harder to women than to, to men. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Would you and would you has has it ever been an, a disadvantage for you <laughs> to uh -huh. to uh, uh, be a woman? <laughs> Wait, say that again. <laughs> Was it has it ever been a disadvantage uh, to you to be a writer, a critic, an art critic? I mean, in your personal life and a woman. She's saying, has your womanness ever interfered? No, that's my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so, I mean, what you're saying there is also can be linked to this, um, what, what you've been talking about, about the I person, about the male universal I, which is the, 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 the white middle class I that is assumed, whereas in, you, you've talked about in your book um, A Blazing World that you have 19 different eyes, eye, yeah. eye voices. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that, about jumping between the different characters and... Yes, actually that book I think of as my multiple personality <laughs> disorder yeah. book. Uh, and, and really I felt that movement, it was very exciting. Uh, you know, I do think about art as the act of becoming the other. And uh, I would hear these voices in my head and return to them. And there were male and female voices. And it's interesting because I, there's a character that I love, a, a male character, Bruno, who's the lover of Harry. And Bruno is a kind of benevolent sexist. And I found myself really embodying his views while I was writing him. Okay. I understood it. I understood the feelings of emasculation and shame. You know, he's very poor. And, um, and I think you can't make voices, you can't make these human beings unless you completely enter them and feel deep sympathy for views that you actually don't share. I don't share as Siri Hustvedt. Hmm. 
interesting. <laughs> and in I Love Dick, the I of I Love Dick is, uh, is Chris, the character in the book. Um, where, I mean, um, what are your views on the personal I person? <laughs> the, is it uh, because you also write from Silver? The, yeah. the uh, Chris's yeah. Chris's husband uh, or partner, and you also write. You, you, the writer, will write his letters as well as Chris Chris's letters. How how do you switch between the eyes? Well, the eye of I love Dick is not really the eye, Chris. No. You know, yeah. it's everyone. It's a yeah. joke. You know, the yeah. eye is really a we. Mm. Um. And, you know, it's always seems strange to me that, that the book is not entirely written. It moves back and forth between the first and the third person. The letters, of yes. course, are written in the first person. Uh, and I wrote the book very much as the book describes. Um, the letters were written first. They were not written as part of a book. I didn't even know I was writing a book. It wasn't until the letters had turned into essays much later, a year and a half later, that I realized, oh, maybe I'm writing a book. But when I decided to write a book, I went away to a cabin in the desert, and that's when I wrote the third-person sections, the narration. The, the third-person parts are written as comedy, and they're given character names, Chris and Sylvia and Dick. Um, it's always amazed me that, the, that, that people think just because the book uses <laughs> the pronoun I that it's some kind of confession or memoir. Yeah. You know, the, um, for hundreds of years, I mean, Listen. thousands of years, literature, poetry, fiction <laughs> has used the first person. Yeah. Yes. Um, and the I is a form of public address. Mm. Um, when I started the Native Agent series in the 90s, um, my goal at that time was to publish, I didn't want to say all women because that sounded too kind of icky and second wave feminism and I didn't want that. So it was going to be mostly women. It was going to be, you know, one straight male kind of outlaw scholar and a couple gay men and the rest would be women. Um, but what the books all had in common was they were written in the first person, but they were definitely not memoir. Um, it was an eye that was asserting itself as an adventurer traveling through the world and bringing you, the reader, with them. Um, so I was trying to assert that a female first person could be a universal first person. Right. I mean, it seemed already beyond obvious at that point that it was, <laughs> and yet apparently not. Yeah. And, uh, and when it, when it was, um, when it was uh, written and it was reviewed in Art Forum... The, um, the one of the one of the reviews said it wasn't so much written as it was secreted, uh, which is <laughs> which also, that was such a gift, and it's also <laughs> but it's also oh, yeah, a kind yeah, yeah. of a you know it's it implies not only that there's, there's somehow the the the, the mushy liquid. A female body, but also the the implication that there is no effort, uh, right? Um, yeah, it, in writing well, it's it. the, yeah, it's the the mucus me metaphor, mm. mm -hmm. right? Right. So, <laughs> 
<laughs> and um, but and uh, so so you'd been. Uh, how did you react when when you had that? I mean, you said it was a gift. Um, <laughs> in terms of publicity, or in terms of how do you mean? <laughs> oh no, I thought I thought bring it on. I you know I was thrilled yeah, yeah. that Art Forum gave it a whole page, and I think I was happier that it was negative than that it was positive because I mm. knew it was negative in such an outrageous way mm. that it was just going to get more attention and it was going to carry the dialogue of the book further mm. into its distribution and publicity life. Yeah. You know, it was the very arguments that. I was making in the book. Here they are manifested. It was like a performance. Mm. What could be better? Mm. <laughs> and if the eye, the female eye, if it's, uh, I mean, we're talking about the, the female eye as the, the possibility of that being per, a universal rather than personal. But in this sort of um, review, it also tends to, we tend to think that it's so, the, the female eye is so, sullied, so um, somehow um, hampered with... <laughs> well, it's with a, think, but think of this, you know, every man, the idea of every man is a completely different idea from every woman, mm. right? I mean, the, so it's the idea that every man can embody this universal journey. But, of course, half the human race is female, so half the human race obviously has to have access to universal experience. Mm. It's absurd. But we continue, I think, to live with that dichotomy. Mm. And what can we do? Mm. We can talk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're going to talk our way out of it. <laughs> we can talk and read. And write. And write yeah. our way out of it. <laughs> um, there's a quote. Uh, I'd like to see if you can recognize the quote. Tell your, tell your own story and you will be interesting. Do you know who said that? No. Somebody you both admire. Oh, Louise Bushwalk. Yes. I bet. <laughs> well, but Very she's good. a complicated character, right? We were talking Definitely. about this today. Louise Bourgeois invented a mythological self to sell to the art world. I happen to love her work, by the way. I'm a great fan. But there's no question that she built up a Louise Bourgeois myth in part to cover over other aspects of her life that remained hidden until after her death. Mm. I find it fascinating. A clever woman. Mm. And, and Chris knew her. I never knew her. I've written about her. I love her work. But you knew her. Mm. Yeah. Tell, tell them a story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anecdote, <laughs> I met her when she was maybe 65 years old. Um, and she didn't have a show. That was four or five years before she had the very important show at MoMA. She was not well known. No. Um, I, she hired me as her, quote, bonded messenger. And I, I was, I was um, riding my bike with her drawings, the oh, famous woman house drawings, <laughs> you know, like in my bike basket up to her gallery, Robert Miller Gallery. But I, I definitely observed what her strategy was. She was very determined to appear as an artist and to have her work known 
and to become famous, which was the only way that her work could be known as if she personally became famous and notorious. And she, I watched the moves that she made in that direction, um, having Robert Maplethorpe photograph her yeah. in the monkey coat, her face not retouched at all, looking even older than she really was, holding the enormous papier-mâché dildo. That was an outrageous and brilliant image that fell right into the kind of downtown New York aesthetic that otherwise she, as an older person, would not have had access to at all. So she became this crazy, batty old lady. And as you say, Siri, what she she said about the way she obscured parts of her life, that feels really true to me, too. There's something so perverse and interesting about this old woman obsessed with her childhood, yes. the father and the father's mistress, and it completely erases her life as an adult woman, exactly. which was much closer to her present when she was beginning her career. Hmm. Absolutely. So, so this is, you know, so people talk about Louise Bourgeois, this is interesting, as a confessional artist, as someone who, who bared herself to the public and all of this. The work is very ambiguous mm. and ambivalent. Speaking of emotions, it, 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 it moves between a kind of uh, a stillness, calm, and rage, uh, but it's all there, sadism and, and sensuality. I mean, it, it's, it's very complicated work. Mm. The, the work does not tell any story. It is not narrative work in that no, way, no. right? But she gave a narrative to to the audience, mm-hmm. uh, and they loved it. Yes, the drama of yeah, the little girl, it. the father's mistress—you <laughs> know her suffering. It's a very uh, a, a clever way, actually, to occlude rather than reveal. Mm. But because she was a woman, the confessional business stuck. I think people are are getting much more savvy about how to read the work now. Yes, yeah. absolutely yeah. brilliant. I saw, I saw she used other people. She enmeshed other people into these kind of Dada-esque performances. Mm. I remember seeing a video. Uh, it was uh, an event that Silvera and I organized in Brooklyn. Um, and she made a video for this occasion. It was a short video of her punching a piece of clay or something and calling it daddy. It was completely (laughs) infantile and ridiculous. Part of the performance was she enlisted the very distinguished MoMA curator, Robert Storr, to show up and introduce it. And he gave this incredibly serious, high-minded introduction (laughs) to it. And then the video comes out, it's like, da-da-da-da, fuck you, (laughs) da-da. Yeah, I know Rob's store too, and he is very serious. And um, I can just imagine this. Yes. So this is a f- the only time I saw Louise Bourgeois was after the MoMA show, mm-hmm. and I think I was just married. My husband is right there. We were at um, a gallery looking at a show, and suddenly, you know. Entrance, entrance stage left. Louise Bourgeois, in black, about this tall. Her hair back. She comes swishing through the gallery with about six young men following her. 
<laughs> all in black. And I, Rob might have been one of them. I don't know. But they were all there. And she took one look, one regal look around the gallery. And then she left. <laughs> with with the, the young men trailing behind her. I mean, I thought... How do you get there? <laughs> but what, somehow, oh, <laughs> somehow that scene is not so funny if it was a male artist, right? And, the, and a row of assistants. No, it's, um, it's, it's funny because... It's much funnier because there's something wonderful that offers relief when a woman, even late in life finds yourself in that position. Mm. Mm -hmm. It becomes celebratory rather than awful. Mm. For sure. But if we were equal, it would probably be awful. (laughs) (laughs) True. And still, um, a Louise Bourgeois sculpture will sell for a lot less than a Jeff Koons sculpture. And I know you've written about... Uh, the arts, the the value of, of yeah. <laughs> but it, but uh, somehow I just want to bring it a little bit back into the the, the sort of art world of today. Yeah, and and uh, female artists having such a such a um, on the art market, the brutal art market, the fem- the female artist really loses out. Yeah. Um, have I, you re- I I have the numbers. Uh, I, I'm very <laughs> Interest in the numbers. So money talks, right? We all know that. Money is important in the art world. Um, the little piece I wrote about money in the art world is about the sale of a Jeff Koons balloon dog orange for 54, 54.8 or $58.4 million. Uh, and w- what is this about? This is a really good question. Uh, it certainly has nothing to do with how expensive it was to make. We know that's not what it is, even though his work is quite expensive to make, I mm-hmm. think. It's, yeah, you yeah. know, he has teams and, and, and the, it's very expensive to make. But it is about perception, the perception of value. Now, why is it that, that Jeff Koons is so much more expensive than even a Louise Bourgeois spider, 10 or $11 million. Uh, Joan Mitchell canvas, again, those are the top. Uh, well, this has to do with the perception of value and masculinity, not just male collectors, also female collectors, but let's say the, the, the major money is often by men. The idea of looking up to a woman of giving oneself up to the authority of the artist as a woman can be emasculating for collectors, right? And the buzz then makes men more expensive. I mean, it's what the market can bear. It's like the stock market. Uh, Buzz... Mm. Does yeah. It? yeah, it's a curious thing. I mean, the art market on that level, it's like futures trading. Yes, right? yes. Um, and it's a game. Uh, and why people would be inclined to bet so heavily on the future of Coons 
where they would not bet so heavily on the future of, I don't know, we could name any number many, of many. contemporary female artists. Yeah. Um, it's hard to say. Well, so the perception, so this, I, there's a little story I tell in that essay about a, uh, a brain study and a bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. And it's a good example of what happens, I think, in the art market. So they gave a lot of people a glass of wine, and they told some of them it was from a $10 bottle, and other people it was from a $100 bottle. No one will be surprised that people had a better experience with the $100 bottle of wine. But that's not what's interesting. They also did brain scans. So the people who thought they were drinking a $100 bottle of wine did show, I'll make it simple, what you, reward systems in the brain were activated more when you thought you were drinking a $100 bottle of wine than you were drinking a $10 bottle of wine. So that means it's a physiologically different experience. You really feel better. It really tastes better. Um, it's not just, and that's why we can't divide the body and the mind, because expectation is part of brain function. What you expect to see when you stand in front of a Rembrandt is part of the physiological experience of looking at the Rembrandt. If tomorrow they decide it's not a Rembrandt, oh God, we made a big mistake. (laughs) What happens? It's the same damn picture. They put it in the basement or they move it to another part of the museum because the name is part of the experience. Well, yeah, I totally agree. And to take it one step further, I think the future that people are betting on is not the future of the physical work, it's the future of the narrative. And completely embedded in Kuhn's work and reputation is the narrative of him as this outrageous bad boy of the 80s, former stockbroker, flaunting people's shock and disgust at his, (laughs) you know, love affair with money and value, right? Right, right. So it's a a lot of edge play about capital that people are betting on there. That's what makes the narrative glamorous and appealing. Mm. Now, maybe Tracy Emin is the only artist of this generation that has created a similar narrative around her work and has approached value in the same way, where the value of the Tracy Emin work has so much to do with the Tracy Emin story. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's Other right. women are making excellent, credible work, but they step back from it, and people are only looking at the work, which doesn't have the sexiness and the cachet of the narrative. So this is something that I really looked at um, writing Kathy Acker's biography. Yeah. This is something Kathy understood very, very well. I mean, she was a writer. She was working in the literary world. But she saw the fame and reputation and the cultural cachet of people like Burroughs and Genet, mm-hmm. writers of the mm-hmm. 60s like mm-hmm. that as countercultural heroes. And she wanted that. Yeah. Yes. No other, there were plenty of women writing, but no other women had that. 
and she set out to attain that for herself mm-hmm. through all of the same stuff. I mean, very similar strategies to what you were describing with Louise. Yes, you know, yeah. um, the narrative of Kathy became part of the. It, it became so enmeshed with the narrative of the work you couldn't mm. separate it. Mm. So the controversy of Kathy became the story, mm. you know, and then the media yes. is so repetitive, you know, can hardly get on a new idea. So then it becomes the controversy about the controversy, what people are saying <laughs> about the controversy <laughs> of Kathy. <laughs> and it's just a self-perpetuating, self-feeding machine. Yeah. And she benefited greatly from it, but I think in the end she also suffered from it um, because images date. And her work really fell out of favor after her death. People stopped reading her because by the 90s, she seemed so dated and so locked into that 80s moment. Mm -hmm. And nobody really wanted to be associated with it anymore. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. And she has this, she has this uh, great quote, Kathy Acker, uh, women need to become literary criminals, break the literary laws and reinvent their own because the established laws prevent women from presenting the reality uh, of their lives. Well, she was exaggerating, of course. I was say. Totally. I I mean, she's not the first woman who (laughs) ever wrote a book. (laughs) No, I think, but that's exactly, you know, it's this, the the idea of the subversive artist, right? So to to recreate that kind of subversion. Now, I, 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 it's an exaggeration. It's, it's a persona, Hmm. Speaking of characters and uh, and play, mm. you know, this is a form of play with your own, if you will, literary persona. Yeah. And it's traditionally been much more difficult for women to do that. Now, it, I'm writing a novel now, and there, there are references to a remarkable woman, um, Elsa uh, Freytag von Loringhoven who was a, in a Dada uh, artist, poet, and she wore Dada. She turned herself into a Dada object. Um, she knew all the people that we remember and was really forgotten for years and years. Now there's an M- MIT book of her work. She's extraordinary. Not only that, hello, an art world story. The urinal, the famous urinal, was very, very likely made by the Baroness Mm. and not Duchamp. And I have gone through all the literature, and it's, I am completely convinced that it's her work and he stole it. Well, after she was dead, he started to tell the story. He took credit for a work that does not belong to him. She submitted it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you look at her other artworks, it's clear it's right in the line of, uh, of the work that she did. Wow. A lot of plumbing. Keywords. In the case of Kathy, there were many other women, her contemporaries and women before her, who were doing 
extremely formally innovative work. Mm. Hannah Wiener, yes. Bernadette Mayer, yes. Daphne Marlotte. What Kathy did was she took that formal innovation and she combined it with this heavily sexualized image yes. and this use of kind of appropriated cut-up pornography. She made it very pop mm. yes. and very accessible. Yes, yes. And just, uh, just uh, because your, uh, your book is coming out... Very shortly, I think. Yes. Or it's, it is out, or is it out? Yeah, it's on more the, or less out. I think they have it outside on okay. the table. Oh, good. 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 Um, just moving along a little bit to art criticism. Um, in Video Green, which is a book you wrote in 2004, uh, I, have a, I have a little quote again. Um, I think that privacy is to contemporary female art what obscenity was to male art and literature of the 1960s. The willingness of somebody to use her life as primary material is still deeply disturbing. And then you continue on to say, to examine things coolly, to thrust experience out of one's own brain and put it on the table is still too confrontational. And I just wanted to sort of put that in, in context with art criticism, um, because art writing um, in, in art magazines or is often quite academicized um, and quite distant. Uh, what, 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 and you're, you're, you're an art critic. I just mm -hmm. wanted to ask you, what do you think about do you read art magazines? Do you? Uh, what? Where? Where is your? <laughs> where? How do you well, position it's, yourself? It's, mostly, it's very boring. Yeah, yeah. Um, I prefer I there's some art criticism written by poets. Yeah, and I, um, I prefer that. Um, we were talking about music criticism. Music mm. criticism is so much more entertaining <laughs> to read and more literary than art criticism. Music criticism has a kind of a fan writing, and, uh -huh. and art doesn't seem to have that same, or, or the writer as almost imagining the, uh, the, the writer that, um, herself trying to be almost a, a rock and roll artist through the pen. It's true, but well, there's no Spotify for the art world. <laughs> Remember that. Yeah. yeah. In a way, music <laughs> writing kind of breaks open the great secret mm. that there's no right way to listen, and yeah. there's no right yeah. way to look. You know, so an inventive music critic just, just, just takes the song, and then run with it. I mean, it's going to be whatever I say because I'm writing it. Mm. And art writing can do that too, but art institutional art criticism is so codified and so yeah. careful and so afraid to you know, put its head on the block. Why do you think that is? Oh, I don't know. Everyone is, you know, everyone kind of goes through the same academies and reads the same books and learns the same language and they don't want to make any waves. It's easier yeah. to keep your head down. Um, There's yeah. so much money at stake, mm. right? Mm. I mean, in, not that the music world doesn't generate billions of dollars. I'm not saying that. Mm. But it's, it's, I think that art criticism or art reviewing is part of what becomes the artist's reputation. If you have no uh, criticism behind you, it's very hard to build a reputation in, in the art world in ways that I think are different in music. That is yeah. so true. Yeah. That is so true. Um, I'm thinking of that great... Do you know the Rene Ricard essay that made Basquiat's career? Oh, yes. That's yes. so brilliant. Yeah. So brilliant. Mm. And, um, you know, that, that's what 
the writer optimally does is they give a narrative and they give a language to a visual work that makes it easy. People can then see it through that lens mm. yeah. who would otherwise be confused. Mm. Yes. And in your uh, Kelly Lake store, uh, the, the, the new book published here in, in, uh, in Norway, uh, which is a collection of essays, you talk a lot about um, collectives operating outside of the art market, uh, artistic collectives choosing other distribution models, other ways of um, exchange. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, yeah. I put together this book for the, uh, the Malbayan Festival in Moss, Norway. Um, and it's uh, essays that I've written over the last five or six years where I kind of go like an anthropologist and spend time with artist groups that are working in places outside of the main centers, mm -hmm. a little bit off the grid, mm -hmm. and yet they're not naive. They're completely aware of what the discourse and issues yeah. are in contemporary art. They're just choosing to be somewhere else. But they're pursuing their work with such a seriousness that for that moment, at least, it seems like the center of the world where they are. Mm -hmm. um, Mexicali, Mexico, another group that was in Echo Park years ago who were not really associated with the art world. Um, and that's very exciting to me. And like completely, it's, it's, it's also kind of like, you know, a sort of flipping off the, um, the art world's obsession with kind of community art and social practice art which seems so false. I mean, it's like young people getting out of art academies and then going to live in a community that they know nothing about. Um, so I wanted to look more at, like, well, in the case of the Mexicans, mm -hmm. the gallery was in their neighborhood, Puerto Nuevo. It already was a community, and they were part of that community. It wasn't this artificial, fake sense of community that social practice talks about. Mm -hmm. And it was so exciting and admirable and beautiful. You know, their, their art openings were like block parties and would yeah. go on till two or three in the morning. But there's also That's a kind cool. of, um, in, the, in the kind of feminist, uh, uh, the, 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 collaborative, the collaborative artwork, if you like, the, the, um, the communities producing artwork together, you have a great quote in I Love Dick that somehow describes the sort of pitfalls of that. Um, it, where, where uh, Chris uh, writes to Dick, Dear Dick, I'm wondering why every act that narrati narrated female lived experience in the 70s has been read only as collaborative and feminist. The Zirish Stardes have worked together too, but they were geniuses and they all had names. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the, you know, the, there is a, a, a whole problem with uh, female genius. You know that, and, and you use the word several times in in the novel um, that it's supposed to not exist, <laughs> right? And uh, so that, in a way, the very idea of of and and I, I, this this is serious. I mean that the idea of autonomy um, and male autonomy which has no relation to the uh, other or to the external world. This is where the idea of genius comes from, mm -hmm. right? And in the 19th century, it was codified by medicine that you were born that way. 
right? So, and we have this again, it's returned in, in, in certain corners of psychiatry and evolutionary psychology, that the idea is you're just born that way. And so women are generally not born that way. Mm. Uh, uh, creative lives are always lives with other people. They're always lives with other artists. Mm. They happen to men and they happen to women. And I think the sooner we understand that, there's no brilliant art without a milieu. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. Except Henry Darger was a really weird guy, but even he had his milieu of, of looking at illustrations and mm -hmm. looking at other works. So mm. he kind of grew it <laughs> around him. But without, I mean, you, you cannot find, mm. you know, a, an artist. I, I can't find an artist that I admire um, or love that wasn't nurtured by other artists, mm. other people. Mm. And in, in the blazing world, um, Harriet uh, believes in her own genius, in a sense. I mean, she wants to be heard. She wants to be seen. She is, you know, incredibly angry about not being recognized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, but somehow, maybe women artists, writers... Um, have to harbor that somehow notion that you, I will be heard. I, I am interesting, just like Louise Bourgeois said. Um, yes, there's a word for it in the, in the psychoanalytic literature that I really like. It's called adaptive grandiosity. <laughs> and um, I, I can never remember this poor psychoanalyst's name. He's not a famous person, but he wrote a, 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 an essay about this arguing that artists need to have it, that artists can't do without it, mm -hmm. because grandiosity is a, a usually a very negative term in psychoanalysis. But he says, no, the artists who do well, and we've given, you've given, uh, we've given examples of it, uh, women and men, are people who have this deep, hard, sense of their own grandiosity and that the world needs what they have to give, which is ridiculous. We all know that. And at the same time, you can't live without that. Mm. Mm. And women have less of it in general than men, I think, and that's because of our social norms. Yeah. Being, being, how do you mean social norms? Well, because women are expected to be a lot more polite. Mm. Much nicer. Mm. And uh, they're, they're often punished for aggression. We all know this. They're punished for tooting their own horns. Uh, uh, you know, it's unseemly. It's unpleasant. It looks aggressive. Mm. Whereas um, in men, it can look honorable and interesting. Mm. Women are supposed to be nice. Men don't have to be nice. A male genius does not have to be a nice guy, mm. right? That's very true. But a woman true. genius has to be very nice. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I think being nasty uh, doesn't necessarily help your reputation if you're a woman. Nasty woman. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
We're drawing close uh, to, the, to our time limit, um, but I wanted to ask you also about obsession. Uh, I Love Dick is, is an obsessional uh, piece of writing, uh, but I wondered, in, for both of you, uh, what, what role does obsession take in your, in your work? Um, can you let, for example, Siri, can you let, uh, do you get um, obsessed with your writing? Do you get, does it take you beyond your somehow control? Um, Listen, I, I think if there's a, usually a moment in a book when I get to a place and I become very sure that the book knows more than I do. <laughs> and then the book at times, not always, but at times seems to write itself. <clears throat> So that there is um, an aspect of, of trance to writing. And for me, that's usually when I'm writing extremely well. Mm. So however you want to frame that, I think that that's an openness that comes from allowing unconscious processes to uh, play a dictatorial role. Mm. But it's not. It surprises me. Mm. I don't know where that's coming from. Mm. I don't yeah. know about you. Yeah, well, I mean, I Love Dick is not an experience to be repeated. <laughs> I did that once. It was my first book. I didn't even know I was writing a book. Mm. It kind of opened the door to writing for me, and then I continued and wrote six other books, mm. and the experience has been different. Mm. Yeah. Not obsessive. I would say more persistent. Than obsessive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a persistence where if you keep going back and keep going back and wait for it and do the prep and do the work, the book will come. Mm. You know, and like you say, the book will show you the path. Yeah. Um, but you just have to be available to it. Mm. You have to structure your life in a way that you are available to it. Mm. Every morning at 6.30. <laughs> Up and at them. Yeah. Is that what you both do every morning at 6.30? Well, I do. I mean, I have that, you know, at home. So, yeah. you know, I go to bed early. I get up early. I'm at my desk. I write until, I mean, this is so boring, but, you know, I write until 1 or 2 in the afternoon. Then I read, try to read for four hours in the afternoon, and that's my life. Mm. What about you? Well, um, I, I, I only have a writing schedule if I'm working on a project. Mm. But then once I'm working on a project, I tend to sort of do the opposite. I piss around in the morning, um, <laughs> kind of procrastinate, do errands, whatever, um, start working around 1 o'clock, but then very, very focused and cocooned. Yeah. And I also have kind of a pre-production period, mm. um, definitely with the biography, because there were so many sources oh, yes. of so much read. research. Yeah. Yeah. But even when I'm writing fiction... Uh, where before I start writing, I'm just immersing myself in stuff mm. and, you know, writing stuff in notebooks and reading and getting ready to write. It's mm. almost as if writing the book is going to be a performance that I have to prepare for. Mm. Hmm. It's somehow a very East Coast, West Coast kind of perspective somehow. <laughs> <laughs> the 6 a.m., the 1 p.m. Um, That's what you have to remember. I grew up as a little Lutheran white girl in Minnesota. Mm. Yeah. The Protestant mm. is in there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But you, you write in Minnesota, do you not? Yes, you, you said I something do. about. So now she's in Minnesota. This is really funny. Yeah. 
I do, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in northern Minnesota, it's just been a wonderful place to go mm-hmm. for writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, way up, way up north. She's yeah. Way up north. <gasps> okay. I think our our um, time is up. Actually, uh, I want to thank you very much for. Um, talking about art and rage and a lot of other things. Uh, it's been great to see you two on the same stage. And, uh, yeah, it's been a really great... Uh, well, and thank session. you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Lit House, the English language podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, Litteraturhuset. Music by Apotek.